Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Well, imagine for a moment that you were an Israelite, a Jewish person living in the land of Israel around 520 BC. I want to tell you what life is like for you. You are living in a backwater province of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire, I mean, we're all at Rome and all these other great ones, but the Persian Empire before it was, was massive. It, it encompassed modern-day Turkey to the northwest of you. It encompassed Egypt in the southwest of you. It contained all of Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and even parts of China in the northeast and northern India in the southeast. This, this empire is, is impossibly large, and you live in a tiny province on its western edge, far from the center of power. And in this massive empire, there's unrest. The old emperor has died, and there's sort of a power struggle. A new emperor has come to the throne, but there are rivals uh, running around creating problems. Egypt, you know, to your south, they've revolted, and armies are being sent to fight with them. International affairs are in an uproar. Back closer to home, where you live, the economy's stagnant. There have been droughts. There have been bad harvests. The cities are half-occupied. They're kind of empty of people. Spiritually, you're the children and the grandchildren of people who really saw God do things. You, your parents returned from exile uh, in, in a miracle of God, and they had high hopes of, of cities being rebuilt, of Jerusalem being repopulated, worship at the temple restored, all things like this. 
And they rebuilt the wall in sort of a record amount of time. That's a story, uh, a different story of Nehemiah. But besides that, not much has happened. Instead of progress, there was enemies and opposition. When you put all these factors together, if you were a Jew living in the land at this time, you get, as one commentator put it, a people living in quiet despair. The work of God had not ended with a a bang, but was kind of going out with a whimper. And I think the people were thinking to themselves, where was the day of great things? Where, Where is the hope and the promise of generations that have gone by? Where is the prosperity they dreamed of? Were they forever just to be a little tiny raft on this giant sea of international powers? Well, that's where Haggai opens. Those are the people he's called to. That's the time that he's called to. People living in quiet despair. People who had a large gap between their hopes and their expectations, what they they thought life could be like, and what reality actually was. And I might note, this is perhaps where many of us find ourselves today. Maybe you, too, are in quiet despair. Maybe you're in loud despair, but maybe you're in quiet despair Anyone having trouble economically? Anyone having trouble spiritually? Anyone upset by international unrest? Uh, Anyone feeling distant from God? Wondering where the hope for great things is gone? Or is anyone just kind of feeling a general angst between what you thought your life was going to be and the reality of day-to-day existence? If you kind of check any of those boxes, like Haggai might be your guy. This, This might be a helpful book for you. Now realize he's a prophet, which means he's not probably going to tell you what you want to hear, even if you're in that state. He's not going to tell Israel what they want to hear, and that's perhaps all the more reason we need to listen carefully to him. But here's where I want to go today. I have four parts to today's message. First, busy with your own house. Second, consider your ways. Third, change. And fourth, what you get is God. So first, busy with your own house. As we read through Haggai over the next couple of weeks, what you're going to notice, one thing you'll notice, is he's kind of obsessed with names and dates. Over and over, in the middle of prophecies, he, he's locating us in history. He's telling us who the important people are, and he's locating us in the season of the year. Right there in verse 1, we learn it's Darius the king, or year 2 of Darius the king's reign. Darius the king, he's the emperor of Persia, the new emperor, the old emperor had died. Now, one interesting sort of fun Bible fact is that before the exile, books of the Bible, they were always dated by who the king of Israel was, but not here and not anymore. They now are counting time, Haggai's counting time by the pagan kings, you know, signaling perhaps how far the people have fallen, you know, how badly things have gone. But it's year two of Darius, and it's the sixth month and the first day of the month. Now, based on that, you might assume that Haggai's referring to June 1st. But that's not how Jewish people did their calendars. They actually tended to start their year in the fall. But since they had been invaded, they had adopted the Babylonian calendar, which starts in the spring. So you're like, okay, so which of the three options is it? Well, the first day of the sixth month, according to the Babylonian calendar, puts them near the end of August uh, in our calendar. And August, of course, uh, is harvest season, which is important for things you'll see in a moment. But this is kind of where we are in in, in world history. It's the end of August, the year 520, and at that date, during that time, while Darius is king, the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, we don't know much about Haggai. We don't know his lineage. We don't know who his father was. His name means my feast or festal. Maybe it indicates that he was born during one of Israel's great feast days. It might be you know, akin to someone you know, naming your kid Christmas or something like that. But uh, th- that's all we basically know about him is what his name means and that he's identified as a prophet. 
Now, to be a prophet in Israel means you have one job. You should say whatever God tells you to say to whomever God tells you to say it. It was not a popular job. It was usually bad news. Most prophets were persecuted, killed, maligned, or, yeah, you know, at best sort of ignored. Yet God keeps calling men like Haggai to be his prophets. God didn't give up on his people. He sent prophets and priests and kings. He pursued them. But look, this is one of the reasons we study books like Haggai. Because right there in the opening verses, we learn it's not mere history. It's not pious advice from an ancient teacher. But it's called the very word of the Lord. This is God speaking to his people. So yes, look, there's some work needed to bridge their time to ours. We live in a very different world. We're not under the thumb of a global empire. Most of us are not Jewish. But this is still part of God's word to us. And on this point, by the way, the law of God was pretty specific and blunt. That if a person came along and, uh, came along and claimed to be a prophet of God, if they say things like in verse 2 where it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts then the the law of God says that prophet lives or dies by the words that follow. So if a prophet comes along and says, this is what God says, and the prophecy doesn't come true, then they were supposed to kill that prophet because he's a false one. He's actually not speaking for God. He's speaking for himself. So this is no casual claim. Oh, this is what God says to you. We can sometimes throw that around. Oh, God told me this or God told me that. No, no. In ancient Israel, you didn't just toss those words around because you had to back them up with your life. So Haggai comes... Speaking the word of the Lord. Who does he talk to? You heard it mentioned a few times. Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Joshua, the high priest. In short, Haggai is talking to the civil leader, the governor, and the religious leader. And this is the message. If you look at verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now these people refer to the Israelites in general. Those who'd come back in the exile or from exile 20 or 30 years earlier. And the people were claiming, they'd been claiming for a while, the time isn't right to rebuild the temple. And they had a laundry list of reasons they would have said that. They were poor, the harvest had been bad, Persian Empire is in tumult, you know. Uh, They barely had enough to take care of themselves. And instead of using what they had to build God's house... Verse 4 tells us they've been working on their own paneled houses. And if you look down at the end of verse 9, Haggai repeats this message. Oh, the people have been busy with houses, but it's been their own, not God's. When resources got scarce, when time and money and energy were short, the people got kind of self-centered. They spent what they had on themselves. And I think, in, in fine prophetic tradition, I think Haggai's being a bit sarcastic here. Because he calls their houses paneled. Now, this word paneled in Hebrew, it's only used five times in the whole Old Testament. So once here, and you know where the other four are? They're all back in 1 Kings, and they all refer to Solomon's temple, (laughs) one of the most beautiful buildings ever built. And so in essence, God is accusing them of taking the same kind of resources, the same kind of decoration, the same kind of like embellishments that that were used for the first temple, and they're, they're building their own houses like that instead. There was paneling available, But they were paneling their walls, not God's. Now, what's the point? The point is this. Difficulty in life became a reason for people to center on themselves. During hardship, they took all their resources and spent it on their own needs. And look, the the, the difficulty, the hardships are real. Like, the, the international unrest wasn't just in their head. It was really happening. The harvest, they probably were really bad. These people had real problems, real reasons, real excuses, but it didn't justify, it doesn't justify their response. God says, my house should not be in ruins while your house is cozy. 
and finished. So the question here in the first point for us is, is, is for us is, what about us? What is our response? What's your response when resources get tight? And I'm talking about money, but I'm not only talking about money. What happens when your time gets squeezed? What happens when your energy and enthusiasm gets squeezed? What happens when your safety gets squeezed? When you're forced to make choices? I understand it's not as straightforward for us. This isn't leading into a big building project. Like we're not, we're not going to raise money at the end of this service or whatever. We, we, we don't need a temple. I'm asking you about your priorities. What gets shortchanged when money gets tight, when resources get tight? And COVID is forcing these decisions all over the place. <laughs> I can see this person, but I can't see that person. I can go to this place, but not that place. When we have less flexibility, when we have less ability to choose, what do we choose? And we learn here, Israel's choosing their own houses over God's, and that's a problem. Okay, part two. Consider your ways. What happens when we choose ourselves over God? What happens when our world kind of gets narrowed down in self-focus? Let's see what Haggai says. Verse 5, God speaks to Israel, consider your ways. And that just simply means kind of what it sounds like. Stop. Think about your life. Don't just kind of soldier forward. Don't just put your head down. You'll stop. Look up. Think about why things are the way they are. And in verse 6, what's been going on? God says, they've sown much but harvested little. They drink but are always thirsty. They eat but are always hungry. They have some clothes but yet are always kind of cold. They make money but put it into a hole with bags. And verse 10 is similar. Where God tells them, heaven has withheld its dew. Earth has withheld its produce. And God has sent sort of this multifaceted drought on the land. There isn't enough grain, there isn't enough wine, there isn't enough oil, but more than crops, God says, there's been a drought on all the labor of man and beast. Now this is kind of the part we we aren't that interested in hearing. That when we go our own way, when our world has gotten narrowed and self-focused, God doesn't let us walk away, but sends things to awaken us. And normally what he sends to awaken us is trouble and difficulty. See, what we see in Haggai is that the drought had a spiritual cause. The lack of crops had a spiritual cause. The the frustration of the people of Israel, their their angst about life had a spiritual cause. And a couple different times in this text, God uses words like therefore and because to show the people that this trouble that they're experiencing is due to their sin. Now look, is every drought because of sin? No, no, of course not. Is every frustration or angst about work because you've neglected God? No, no, of course not. There is both sin and suffering in our world, and they're often intermixed. They're often difficult to tease apart. But in this specific instance, God says the affliction is because of their sin. They're having trouble because they've been busy with their own houses and neglecting God's house. Sinful priorities have led them here. And so what I would urge you is that in light of this text to stop and to consider your ways. If you are facing some kind of affliction in your life, a trouble, a drought of some kind, I would urge you to stop and think about it. Is there, are there other spiritual roots of this situation? It is true that God sends trouble and problems to awaken us. C.S. Lewis says it this way, I've quoted it before, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And it's just worth contemplating. It's worth thinking about, is this pain, is this trouble God's way to get my attention? If you're anything like me, I assume everything is suffering. 
How could it be me? How could, how could I have done something that, that caused this? But Haggai says, no, no, no. Consider your ways. And so let me just ask you, feeling frustrated in your work life? Trouble getting ahead? Trouble making progress? Are you frustrated in a more existential way? You feel empty inside? Food and drink and other things have kind of lost their, their savor? Do you just sense you're under a burden of some kind, like God's hand is pressing on you? This is a chance. This is maybe God calling you to consider your ways. You know, to be fair, Israel never got it. All the things God sent, it, did, it didn't work. The lack of food, the lack of drink didn't awaken them. The miserable harvest didn't awaken them. Lack of money. The drought of everything bright and beautiful in their lives didn't awaken them. They needed a prophet to come on and be like, Let's connect the dots. Let me, let me draw the outline. Do you see what's happening here? Now, look, I'm not a prophet like Haggai, but perhaps the Holy Spirit will connect some of the dots in your life today. But take stock. Consider your ways. Okay, part three, change. So after they've considered their ways, what should they do next? Well, in verse seven, God says, again, consider your ways. Now, is he being repetitive for emphasis? I don't think so, because look at what he says next. He says, consider your ways, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, not by pondering the past, but by changing the way you live in the present. He's saying, consider your ways. Don't just feel bad about how you've acted. Go up into the hills, chop down some trees, bring the wood back, and rebuild the temple. See, when the uh, temple was burned by, by the Babylonians, all the wood, all the fabric, everything else would have been burned up, but the rocks, the pillars, were likely still there or they were maybe like lying on the ground, but were still kind of around. The foundation was still in place. But to rebuild the temple, you need all of the, the burnables. You need, you need new wood and furnishings. So that's what God is telling them to do. Go, go get some of the stuff you need and bring it here and build the house. But this is kind of important because God tells them to consider their ways twice, and it shows us kind of the two-step dance of repentance. The first step, which we just talked about, was to consider, have you sinned against God? Is there something there? But that's not it. That's not the end. It's not enough to merely feel bad about your sin. The point is to change. See, the second step of repentance is to do something different. The Israelites, they'd sinned by neglecting the temple. Right over here, the first thing they realized that. So repentance means acknowledging the sin and taking concrete steps to fix it. Go chop down some trees. Now look, their step of repentance probably won't be yours. It's unlikely that you've sinned in such a way that the chopping down trees is the solution. But let me give you a few examples, a few options. Let's say you've noticed that you've been grumbly and ungrateful and complaining lately. And this morning you're like, yeah, I kind of realize it. You kind of admit it to yourself. That's great. That's an important step. That, that's, that, that's over here. That's just part one. Repentance involves concretely, how do I move forward with the opposite, with thankfulness and gratefulness and contentment? So look, that probably involves prayer. Great, you should pray about it. But maybe you should take some other concrete step. Have a gratitude journal. Have a dinner table discussion regularly of things you're thankful for. Talking to a friend about all of the why, why you're feeling so complainy. Considering your ways means changing your habits. Not just putting your head down and hoping that things will be better all on their own. Let's do another one. Let's say lately you realize you're getting kind of obsessive about money. And you think constantly about it. And you're checking your investments 
all the time, you know, too much. And your giving has dried up because you're squirreling away every last penny for, for some other kind of goal. And maybe if you have a family, you've been nagging people about their spending habits. And maybe this morning you've realized you and money, you have an unhealthy relationship. It's too important in your life. So if that's true, great. That's step one. You've considered your ways with money, but consider them again in step two to figure out, well, what can change? What, what can be different? It's not just enough to feel bad. Just do I need to install like a time limiter or a day limiter on how often I can check things? Do I need some sort of automatic withdrawal system so my giving gets back on track? Maybe it's, again, a purposeful conversation with someone about your money. But considering your ways, it always has two parts. Reflect on the past, but change in the present. Now, what happens with Haggai's message? What does Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people do? If you look at verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet, and the people feared the Lord. And if you look down in the middle of the last verse, it says, they came and worked on the 24th day of the sixth month. I told you he was kind of obsessed with dates. What day did Haggai start? Give his message the first time? The first day of the sixth month. 23 days later, the teams are out, you know, gathering wood or the craftsmen are in the temple. It's a tremendous response. I mean, Haggai, like, He's great. Most prophets get no response or negative response. Uh, Haggai needs 23 days. It's amazing. Now, one little thing to point out. I think it's helpful to remember that when, as Haggai's uh, speaking, giving, giving the message, the word of the Lord, the people had only been back in the land for about 20 or 30 years. So fresh in the memory, especially of the parents, the grandparents, would have been the time they spent in the, in, in the foreign lands. Basically, I'm saying they remembered how God had punished them, how, how he had paid them the wages of their sins. And I think it's important here that Haggai notes the people feared the Lord. That they, they knew what it was like when God's anger was aroused. They, they remembered what it was like when sin went unchecked and, and nothing changed. And I'm just kind of wondering if we do. And I'm not pointing any fingers except at myself. Just, just what if you knew, what if you really thought about or, or, or knew that your problems with money were on the verge of bringing down God's punishment on you? That if you kept worshiping money the way you do, it's going to destroy you. I mean, how many of us are taking seriously that if we keep lusting after other people, that such behavior may not only just damage our relationship, but bring down God's wrath on us? These people feared the Lord. They knew what it was like. And they're like, we don't want to go back there. We, we don't want to be in Babylon again. We, 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 let's change. They considered their ways. Part four, what you get is God. Now, there's a, there's a danger here in Haggai 1 that I want to draw your attention to that we need to be very careful with. I think it's easy to, to misconstrue Haggai's message to make it something it's not. Here's what I mean. It seems, seems, the lesson of Haggai 1 is that the reason a person might not have personal prosperity is because they haven't given to God's work or given enough. Now, you can see where, where the, you might get that. God tells them they've neglected him, and because they've neglected him, he's sent droughts and, and different kinds of trouble. But I don't think you can take this situation, argue it backwards, and make a law out of it. I don't think you can take Haggai 1 and argue, if you give to God, he will give you prosperity. That's just kind of a form of Christian materialism. I don't think it's what Haggai's saying. In that case, all you've done is replace, I will take care of myself with, I will look out for God so he will take care of me. 
Do you see, the end goal never actually changed. God was just sort of an intermediary. He was just a means to an end. Look carefully at this passage. God never promises that if they rebuild the temple, he will increase their crops. Verse 8, he says, rebuild the temple of the Lord. Why? So that God will take pleasure in it and he will be glorified. I think this is really important. Why should they build the temple? Because it will testify, even when they have little, that God is the most important. Building a temple in a drought makes much of God. And according to these verses, it actually brings him pleasure. It pleases him. See, it's not just about the building. God is asking the people to say with their actions, with their lives, my strength, my well-being, my safety comes from God. I think that's what's on the line here. When, they, when the chips are down and, and resources are running short, whom do you trust? And Haggai says the answer to that question is found in your bank account and in your weekly calendar and in your hobbies and your dreams. And if you look there, you'll find the answer. Now, what do you get when you, when you put God first? Look at verse 13. The people responded with obedience and with fear. We said that plans are being laid. You know, work teams are, 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 are doing stuff. What do they get? God sends Haggai to the people to say this. I am with you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord stirs up their spirits to do the work. Now, I love this part. Because sometimes I wonder, why do we think we can change? Why do we think we can make progress on, on grumbling and complaining and all the other things we struggle with? It's not because we have exceptional willpower, clever habits, a more robust accountability structure. I mean, those things may help, whatever. Haggai shows us when we consider our ways, when we attempt to move forward in a new direction, God himself is with us. And he stirs up their spirits to follow through. He empowers them. He, he directs them and us. And look, the people had barely done anything yet. The work teams, you know, still on the way to the, the forest or whatever. But God's immediate response is to reassure them of his presence. What they get, it's not more wine. It's not more oil. What they get is God. Many of you uh, probably know the story of the prodigal son. It's famous in, Christ in Christian circles, even outside of the church to some extent. If you don't know it, very briefly, a father has two sons, and the younger one asks for his share of the inheritance while his father still lives. And the father gives it to him and he leaves home sort of a bag of money over his shoulder and he goes to a foreign country and he blows it all in wild living. And, and then he's broke, homeless. And while working a menial task in a foreign land, he comes to his senses. He's like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to apologize, try to make it right. I'm going to ask my father to take me back as a, as a hired worker on the farm. And he begins the long walk home. And in Luke 15, we read this. And while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I hope you can take a moment to picture in your mind this scene of, of a, probably a somewhat elderly Middle Eastern patriarch running towards his son who had made every mistake and literally like taken uh, much of the father's wealth, but has decided to come home. My friends, it, it, it's not too late. It, it, it's never too late. If you can hear the gospel, it's not too late. And so look, if this morning you've neglected the house of God, okay, come home. 
You can come home. Maybe you've wrecked your life. Maybe you've wrecked someone else's life. You, you can still come home. Maybe you've been places you shouldn't have been or you've been with someone you shouldn't have been with. You've seen things you shouldn't have seen. You can come home. Because the great declaration of God at Christmas with the birth of Jesus is Emmanuel. It's God with us that he's here. That in some cases, we didn't even make a start for home. We were still in the foreign country, but Jesus came to that foreign country of our wild living to find us there. See, the whole story of the scriptures is that every one of us is busy with our own house. And we've neglected God's house, and we've, we've been putting up our paneling and making it look warm and cozy for ourselves, and we've, we've rejected God, and so God sends himself to call us home. So I would urge you today, consider your ways. Consider them. Change, turn, repent. Not because it gets you more stuff, but because in the end you get God. I pray he'd give us ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the book of Haggai, written thousands of years ago. Yet by your spirit, uh, it's relevant. It makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of, of angst we're feeling. It makes sense of sins that we've committed. It makes sense of the way our hearts go astray and wander. Lord, would we return to you this morning? Would we consider our ways and change and that your Holy Spirit would, would stir us up towards love and towards good deeds and towards faith and trust in Christ? And we ask these things in his name. Amen.